May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. What makes a sermon a sermon? There was a time when, so long as you led with a winsome joke, you had three theological points that you could make in 15 minutes, and you ended with the lyrics of a poem, you could call that a sermon. There was another time when preaching was more like a lecture. You had 45 minutes to talk about one verse from Scripture filled with historical critical information, concordance data, and intertextual analysis. That's how you make people fall asleep, Steve Gross. 45-minute lecture on one verse. And still yet, there's preaching that is called preaching so long it is, as it is manipulative enough to make people cry and want to give themselves to Jesus at the end when you say, Amen. What makes a sermon a sermon? I think it's a good question. I also wonder about why do we remember certain sermons and we forget others? I think sermons are kind of like meals. We all have to eat to live. Sermons are kind of like that for our spiritual lives. But I mean, thousands of meals we've all consumed. But when we look back on our lives, the only meals we really remember are the really good ones or the really bad ones. I think sermons can be like that too. Just last week during our Easter egg hunt, one of our own came up to me and was able to quote verbatim a whole paragraph from a sermon that one of my predecessors preached about 15 years ago. I can't even remember what I preached about last week. But somebody in our church could remember a whole paragraph from 15 years ago. I'll let you decide whether they remembered it because it was good or because it was bad. Why is it that we remember certain sermons and we forget others? As our current resident preacher, I'll be the first to admit that I think sermons, as I said before, are very strange things. Very strange. My experience is that working on a sermon during the week, when I come to church on a Sunday feeling all puffed up, feeling six foot five, feeling like the Lord has given, I dictated straight from the lips of God the sermon that I need to preach, that I get up here and I can tell when a sermon is working and when a sermon is not. I think sometimes you forget that I've got the best seat in the house. I can see all of you. I do know when people fall asleep. I know when a sermon works and when it doesn't. But on the Sundays when I come to church dragging my feet, begging God to give me something better to say than the sermon I wrote, it's those Sundays that someone in this church will come up to me outside and say, did you know that what you said today was exactly what I needed to hear? I think, come on, God. Why do you have to work that way? How odd of God to speak to us this way. And yet, no matter what a sermon is or what a sermon says, a sermon is only a sermon when God shows up. In other words, sermons in a book, sermons online, even the audio that I take out of the sermon, the worship service we have every week to make it available for our sermon podcast we have here at the church, I don't think those are actually sermons. Because I think a sermon is only a sermon when it is surrounded by prayer, when it is flanked by singing, when it is offered to the gathered people on Sunday morning. Otherwise, it's just words on a page. If Peter has anything to say about it, sermons are only sermons when they're prompted by the Holy Spirit. One of the things that's nice about writing a sermon every week is that it clarifies what you believe, and in so doing, it brings about a confrontation with the Word of God. Now, I know that confrontation might seem like a stretch. I know sometimes it might seem like someone stands up here and they make it up on the spot. I know some people who do that. 
That sounds like an ulcer waiting to happen. There's a lot of confrontation that takes place every week. Diving into the strange new world of the Bible, praying over the text, looking at the words we're going to be singing in our songs. What is it that God is trying to say to us? Preaching is always personal, which means for better or worse, preaching is always an opportunity for confession. I am not the Christian I ought to be. I am not the Christian I ought to be, and there's a pretty good chance you feel the same about me and perhaps about yourselves, but all of us. We all stand under the authority and the weight and the power of the revealed word as the Spirit guides and shapes and nurtures our faith. In other words, discipleship is a dance, and grace is the DJ. Now, most of the time, God, through the Spirit, has something to say, and usually the most remarkable things that God says come through the most unremarkable people. The beginning of Acts is a revolution sparked by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In many ways, we are still living out the Acts of the Apostles. We are now God's Apostles, and we are acting out the faith today because everything we do is because of Easter. Easter changes everything about everything. After Easter, Jesus spends 40 days with the disciples. He continues to teach. He continues to preach. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. But he says that they will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, whatever that is. And then they do. It's on the day of Pentecost. They're in the upper room. They're perhaps telling stories, remembering what happened in Galilee. The Spirit descends upon them, Scripture says, like fire. Their tongues and their bodies and their souls are filled with the power of this Holy Spirit. They begin to speak in other languages. They spill out from the house. They're stumbling around. They're accused of hitting the sauce a little too hard and a little too early. They're accused of being drunk. And they are. They're drunk on the Spirit. And it's at that precise moment that Peter yields to the movement of the Spirit and he begins to preach. I don't know if you or I really think of Peter as a preacher. Chances are, if we think of Peter at all, we tend to conjure in our mind this bumbling, foolish disciple who's always too eager and too willing to jump in head first. Maybe if we think of Peter, we think of the fact that he denied Jesus not one time, not two times, but three times. Maybe we think of him as a fisherman, but Peter the preacher? And yet here, at the beginning of Acts, Peter preaches the first sermon. Now, it is, of course, true that the women of, on, the to, uh, on Easter at the tomb, they are the first preachers. They carry the good news of the empty tomb, and they are the first to proclaim it. Without them, none of us would be here. The women are the first preachers of the gospel. But this is the first sermon because it has just taken the Holy Spirit to arrive in these people for Peter to stand up and say something new. What does he say? Jesus the one you all know, the one you all heard about, the one you all experienced, was handed over to die and was killed. But God raised him up, freedom from death. And now death's dominion has come to an end. It's just like David said in the Psalms, I saw the Lord always before me. He will not give my soul over to Hades. He will not let my body become part of corruption. The Lord has made known to me the ways of life, makes me full with gladness. That's what David said. And look, David's dead and buried. We can go visit his tomb in the garden. We can do. But he knew the power of God. The power discovered in Jesus. This Jesus God raised up. And of that all of us are witnesses. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. That is one short sermon. It's short. 
It's to the point. I wonder sometimes how we lost our way when it comes to preaching. Because it's, it's confounding to take this image in for again a second. It, these ragtag disciples, they, they're stumbling out of a house. There's, there's 12 of them. They're drunk on the Spirit. It must have garnered quite a crowd to hear them speaking in all these different languages. But none of them, not Peter, not any of them, they have anything to show for themselves. No exceptional credentials. They don't have their Master's of Divinity degree from Duke Divinity School. They don't have any financial capital to invest. They've got nothing. They've got nothing except a message. And thankfully, the message is always greater than her messengers. I mean, think about Peter again for just a moment. He had little to say before the Spirit got touching his tongue. And what he did say before this usually got him into trouble. He's out fishing one day, not catching anything, mind you, but he's fishing. A stranger appears and says, hey, why don't you go try to fish some more? Okay. He goes out in the boat. He throws the net over the side. He catches so many fish, the boat begins to sink and he realizes it's God in the boat with him. And what does he say? Not thank you or amen or oh most holy one. He says, get away from me because I'm a sinner. And what does Jesus say in reply? Don't be such a fool, Peter. Is that really what Jesus said? No, but he should have. He should have. Peter's out. He's uh, playing all the parables in his mind. He's seen Jesus do these miracles. And Jesus says, hey, Peter, who am I? Peter says, oh, you're the Messiah, the Holy One. The one that the scriptures attested to. Jesus says, good job, Pete, A+. Plus. I might have to build this whole church thing right on top of you. Now listen carefully, because this is important. The Messiah has to be handed over to the chief priests, the elders. The Messiah has to die, and three days later, the Messiah has to come back from the grave. And Peter says, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't think we're talking about the same kind of Messiah as Jesus. The Messiah can't die. You've got it all wrong. And you know what Jesus says to him? Get behind me, Satan. Did Jesus really say that? He did. Peter, he's standing by a fire. He's got bread. It's stuck in his beard. His, his lips and his teeth are stained from all the red wine. He's just had the Last Supper. He's just watched his Lord be arrested in the garden. And he's standing at a fire. And someone on the other side says, Hey, don't I know you? Don't I know you from somewhere? Aren't you? Weren't you? You were with Jesus, weren't you? And he says, Jesus? Never heard of him. And a rooster crows in the distance. This guy, this is the guy God says, let's let him preach. Why in the world does God choose Peter to preach the first sermon? He doesn't have anything to show for his so-called discipleship save for the one who saved him. Easter and Pentecost, they change everything for Peter. They clarify everything about Jesus' life such that Peter's life is now a confessional I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live for the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so it's Peter, with all of his flaws, with all of his warts, with all of his bruises, it's Peter who gets to preach the first sermon. His words now and forever will talk about what the Spirit is doing, what God is doing in and through the person of Jesus. He stands and he speaks alone. But he's not alone. No preacher ever preaches alone. Every preacher is a product of this sermon, of Peter's spirit-filled willingness to point backward, around, and forward all at the same time. 
He echoes the prophets of the past. He acknowledges the Spirit's present presence in the present reality. He leans forward to God's future, what we call the kingdom of heaven. In this moment of preaching, he is caught up in something far larger, far deeper, far wider than any of us can ever imagine. Which means that every sermon, the good, the bad, and the ugly, they are sermons when they point to Jesus. Sermons are sermons when they proclaim the cross and the resurrection. Sermons are sermons when they contain a promise. Hear the promise again. Jesus was killed, died, buried, forsaken in a tomb. In his death, he takes all of our sins with him. But then God gives him back to us. He is risen, and his resurrection means our promised resurrection. We are all witnesses. Who's the we? We are all witnesses. Who is he talking about? Is he talking about himself and the 11 who are stumbling around in the streets of Jerusalem? Is he talking about the whole crowds because they have experienced the, the spirits being poured out on it? Who is the we? I think it's you and me. We are all witnesses to the power of the resurrection. You see, according to the kingdom of God, I'm not the only preacher in the room. We've all got news to share. We've all got good news, the gospel news. And the really good news is we all have different ways to share it. Now, some of us share it with the way we sing, with our lips, with our voices. Some of us share the gospel. We preach the gospel with our hands. We make casseroles and we bring them over to people's houses when they're hungry. Some of us uh, preach the gospel with our hands. We're good with tools and we can make steps for people. We can fix windowsills. Some of us preach the gospel with our feet. We show up for people when they need it most. Some of us are foolish enough to preach the gospel with sermons. We stand up every week and say the same old story over and over again because it's just that good. The good news is all of us are preachers. Because living on this side of, the, of Easter means we all have something to share. We all have a message. And thankfully, the message is always greater than her messengers. So dear gathered preachers of the gospel, hear me when I say, when you preach, preach good news. The world's got enough bad news. Preach good news. Preach the good news in whatever way you see fit. Preach with your lips. Preach with your hands. Preach with your feet. Preach the good news. Preach it when all is well and preach it when all is hell. Preach it when you are believed and when you are nowhere received. Preach the good news until Jesus is magnified. Preach it until the devil is terrified. Preach it until God is satisfied. You've got good news to share. Preach it. I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God now and forever.